Hello and welcome to Knowledge Engage, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. The Knowledge Engage podcast is an opportunity to explore with our researchers the work they're doing and the difference it's making. I'm Stephen Meek, Director of the Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Seamus Garvey. Seamus is Professor of Dynamics in the Faculty of Engineering here at the University, and the issue that we want to discuss today is about energy storage and and storing the energy produced by renewable means. Perhaps you can tell us how your research journey led you to the issue that we want mainly to discuss today. Absolutely. Well, the story goes back to my school days, in fact, when I was passionately interested in wind turbines. Then uh, I did a few projects on that in secondary school, forgot all about it for a good many years, did my degree, worked for six years for a big electrical machines company, I worked for 10 years at Aston University and then came to this university as a professor of dynamics, University of Nottingham, and was in 2005 the director of research for the School of Mechanical Engineering. And I was looking at the situation, the developing situation of funding for research at the time and thinking, well, the energy portfolio must grow very rapidly and we need to connect more to it. And I had a concept in a car on a journey on the way back from Bristol that said, well, some of my colleagues are very interested in composite materials and draping fabrics, and they had really top quality expertise in that. And it occurred to me that perhaps one could use this to uh, store energy underwater in the form of compressed air. Now, that was a very specific concept, and I resolved I would go back to my office do a few calculations and get that out of my head. When I did the calculations, I couldn't get it out of my head because they (laughs) didn't tell me it was a bad idea. I was hoping that they would. And then I tried to persuade my colleagues to work with me on that, and they weren't really very interested. And it was the start of a journey that made me, first of all, interested in was energy storage worth anything? And then secondly, very quickly, after you think about this, maybe I'd store compressed air underwater, you start to think, well, where would you get the compressed air from? And the simple answer to that would be, well, you take electricity, you would drive a compressor and make the compressed air, and then you would regenerate the electricity at some later point. But you start to think quite quickly, well, maybe I could have compressed the air using the wind in the first instance. That's very specific, what I'm telling you there. And I don't mean for this to be about compressing air. This is a much more general message than that. But what I've told you is already the key point. Mm-hmm. We should not think about storing energy and about harvesting renewable energy as two completely separate disciplines and two problems. They are intrinsically the same problem. And the big B in my bonnet is that most of society is hell-bent on separating these two. And there's a fundamental truth about engineering, which is that if you want to design a system and you put a constraint in the middle of it that says this part has to do function A, and that part has to do function B, you will get a less good system than if you say, let's see about a system that can do functions A and B together with no constraint. At the core of all of this is that very simple idea. We shouldn't think about harvesting renewable energy and then making it flexible, making it arrive when people want it as two separate problems. 
And so what are the consequences of that sort of functional divide that you've been describing? I mean, is it that people just have been looking in the wrong place for storage, in your view, or Uh, they've been just thinking that renewables will provide electricity for a certain amount of time, but then we've got to look to other sources for the days in the year when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining? There is a complacency that has set in, and I need to explain something now about the way the electricity system has always worked in the past, Mm -hmm. because the energy systems of the future are completely different from the energy systems of the past. The energy systems we had in the past comprised extracting coal and oil and gas from the ground, setting fire to that in a power station and generating electricity. And we have calculated the value of what we got out of that purely in terms of the energy. So we take the cost of making it and divide it by the number of megawatt hours. And we say it was this many pounds per megawatt hour. And we get numbers like about 40 pounds for a megawatt hour of electricity from coal at the moment. And that's wonderful. What we have failed to realize all the time is that we were getting an enormous gift for free. We were taking these fossil fuels, storing them near to a generating station, which is a fantastic way to store energy. If only they didn't release carbon dioxide, nobody would think about renewables or indeed nuclear power for that matter. Nobody would think about the low carbon generations because the fossil fuels are marvelous. They have built in energy storage at extraordinary capacities. Talk about batteries now. Batteries will store a kilowatt hour for, let's say, $100. You can store a kilowatt hour in the form of coal or gas for less than 10 cents, probably less than one cent, actually. The the contrast is extraordinary. So the problem is that along this journey, we forgot that the fossil fuels weren't just giving us energy. They were giving us flexibility as well. What happened is we started along the journey of decarbonization. Very good thing. We introduced a very small amount of wind power and solar power into the system. And we correctly assessed that every megawatt hour we generate from the wind displaces one megawatt hour of coal or oil or gas. So that's a good thing. And the systems that we have are based on that presumption. That was correct. And it was entirely right and good that we did that. We introduced incentives then for people to develop machines and systems that could do this. But we forgot that whilst we were replacing the energy, we were also going to have to replace the flexibility. And nobody really was thinking, certainly 20, 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. nobody really thought that renewables were actually going to provide perhaps 80, 90% of our energy. Everybody was thinking it would be great if they provided 30%. And if they did, you don't have to think about the flexibility. So that's the background. We're in the middle of this extraordinary transition Mm -hmm. from the old system into the new system. And unfortunately, we're still using the measures and the methods of the old system to assess what we're going to do about the new one. We've got an old system with a a very low storage cost, very flexible, but very high environmental cost, and a new system with a very low environmental cost, but quite difficult to see. Precisely so. Well, but there are two costs, and that's what it comes down to. If you want electricity available on demand, there are two components to that cost. One of them is the cost of generating the electricity in the first place. Mm -hmm. The second one is the flexibility cost of making sure that it arrives when and where you want it, because the wind does not blow when you want to cook your dinner necessarily, and the sun is not shining. And it's as simple as that. But if we think about... So you could just just charge up your coal-fired power station when there was a gap in... when there was no sun and no wind. 
that's how you got you your fire it up. exactly yeah. so you you ramp it up is, is the yeah. word they ramp them up and they ramp them back down again now they don't do it instantly but they can do it quite mm. quickly they can do it over half an hour and we can certainly predict that the wind is going to drop away or mm. rise up in half an hour so we have this interesting transition between the two worlds and what most people don't realize is that if you look forward to 2050 when all of our energy will have to be low carbon the costs of providing the flexibility are going to be as big or bigger than the costs of generating the electricity. So this isn't a small sideshow of a problem. This is the main event. Yeah. And the storage is so key here, isn't it? Because even if you generate, which you can do with renewables, generate a massive surplus when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, that still will give you a gap. I mean, how, how big do you think that gap is between the amount of time in which electricity is generated yeah. because of environmental conditions and when actually we've got a bit of a problem? Well, we have this balancing problem it has two dimensions yeah. to it. So very simple for the uh, renewable side of things. If you have a wind turbine rated at 10 megawatts, an offshore wind turbine, on average, it makes five megawatts over a whole year. Mm -hmm. Five megawatts multiplied by the number of hours in a year is how many megawatt hours you get out of the wind turbine. If you have a solar panel rated at six kilowatts, let's say, the average output is one. It's a, it, so it's a much bigger ratio between the peak output and the average. So both of these are intermittent sources. They're always either zero or positive. They don't go negative. They don't consume electricity. And then we have the fact on the demand side that demand is also not constant. So some people assume that what we want is a constant supply of electricity. This is incorrect. If we did want a constant supply of electricity, nuclear power would be perfect because it just runs constant power all the time. But we don't. And so there's a lot of muddled thinking about that, that, that nuclear power is ideally suited to our demands. It's not. It's not much better suited than wind. So how then does this help us solve this problem? You know, one of the key mm -hmm. things about energy storage, key attributes of energy storage is quite an extraordinary ratio. I want to illustrate this with a, a bottle of water that you might buy in a shop. If you buy a bottle of water to drink in a shop, spring water, you drink the water and you throw away the bottle. Uh, the bottle was worth less than 1% of what you bought. But with energy storage, it's completely the other way around. If you have a, a container that stores energy and can do so repeatedly, the container is probably worth a thousand times as much as the energy. So you have to drink a thousand bottles of water to make it worthwhile making the bottle. And that's something that people don't realize that energy storage, no matter how you do it, is expensive. And in order for us to accommodate the flexibility that we will need in the future, where we have to figure out the most inexpensive ways. And it won't be one solution. There is no one silver bullet. So you've got these ideas around storing, you know, ability to store energy. So you might think, well, this is great. Why aren't we trying it and doing it now? But I think you found that there are issues with the way we pay for electricity. There are a number of issues, but, but probably the most fundamental one is yeah. the way, not, not so much the way we pay for electricity, but the way we incentivize companies yeah. to build offshore wind farms for us. So the process of putting up an offshore wind farm has many uncertainties associated with it. And in order to reduce the level of those uncertainties, the government has put in place, as other governments have done, a system that is called contracts for difference. 
And in effect, the contract for difference, I'm simplifying for the sake of simplicity and brevity here, but it's not that far different from the truth. The relatively straightforward fact is that they reward you per megawatt hour. And as I said earlier on, if we're interested in just displacing 10 or 20 percent of our supply from fossil fuels to clean energy, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. But we're already talking about having 40% of all of our electricity from wind power by 2030 and probably almost 100% of it by 2050. So this is a completely different situation. And yet we still have these uh, contracts for difference that last 15 years. So a wind farm that gets put up, you know, there, there are already contracts out there for wind farms that will be started in 2023. And we will still be respecting the contract for difference in 2038 by which time 2050 is not very far away. So the problem with that is that you actually take away the very thing that might drive a fantastic technological innovation. Now, uh, people listening to this will wonder what is he talking about because you could put batteries on land or at sea and it would be the same. What I'm fundamentally talking about is the difference between the conceptually simple approach, which is you make the electricity from the offshore wind turbines, and if you don't need it, you put it into storage, and then you take it out of storage when you do need it. And the contrast to that is you collect energy from the wind when the wind is available, but you make electricity only when you require electricity. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental difference between those two big differences, you're paying for extra equipment in the first case, and you're paying for extra conversions, because every time you turn energy from one form into another, you lose mm -hmm. People would be horrified if they if they understood how big the losses were. If you put money into a bank and 10% of it was lost when you put it in and 10% was lost when you got it out, you'd be utterly horrified by that. But that is the fact, and indeed worse than that, with most energy storage. So actually, this is a more efficient way of storing. You get it's, more, you, you more, get more back habits. from what you put in. Yeah, you do. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is so this is a really interesting situation where a and one very familiar to me from my time working in government's policymaking. You've got one perfectly logical system which suddenly reaches a point, acts as a disincentive to doing the rational thing now. So I, I'm interested in how have you managed to engage people in government and elsewhere on this. I can summarize that in, in two words very badly so far, <laughs> but, but not for want of trying. So through the University of Nottingham's own policy briefings, there was a policy briefing last year, which was uh, it was well subscribed. It wasn't very well attended in real time. Yeah. But I think people looked it up afterwards. So that was one element of it. And I'm currently in an active conversation with Bayes saying, please don't believe what I assert. Please do an independent study. And the early indications are that, that this makes quite a big difference to the annual cost of electricity. Now, that study has only been an economic study. It hasn't been an engineering study. So it hasn't addressed, is it really feasible to integrate this storage? I say it is. I, I've been a mechanical engineer for 37 years, is it? Oh, my Lord. Uh, <laughs> 37 years, and I do know the discipline rather well at the moment, and I look at this thing and I see no problem that I don't know somebody who could solve, including me in most cases. There is engineering to be done, there's no doubt about that, but there is absolutely no insurmountable problem. I'm biased, of course, because I've 
been close to it for 15 years now. Uh, so I fully accept that we would need an objective set of eyes to look at it and say, is this reasonable? But it seems to me that you can make systems that would fit into the same wind turbine towers in the same nacelles that are different from the gearbox and generator that we have at the moment that would fulfill this function. I'd like to pick up another note. Uh, I wrote an article recently in Materials World. That's another way in which I've tried to engage uh, with consciousness, uh, particularly among the policymaking classes. And I pointed out that uh, the UK is the biggest market in offshore wind in the whole world. And if you look at the next three countries down, the order changes around, but they are Germany, Denmark and China. All of those have huge wind turbine manufacturers. The UK has no big wind turbine manufacturer. We've got manufacturing plant owned by Danish and German companies, but we're doing the low value added work in that plant and they're creaming off the, the rewards and, and benefiting from the, the intellectual input into this. And I think that we have the opportunity, particularly being the biggest offshore wind market in the world, to grab hold of this market. So I think it's a really amazing opportunity for the UK. No, that's really um, interesting. You know, the other sort of lesson one draws from this is how, you know, in so many areas, when we're talking about net zero sustainability, dealing with climate change, you know, the decisions we make now are the ones that will be having a consequence in 2035, in 2040. Absolutely. So it's, you know, it, it feels very important that these ideas are, are considered and explored now and that there isn't the sort of the inevitable inertia of the system doesn't get in the way of thinking, well, actually, is there a way we can do this differently? And it's interesting as well. I mean, like you say about the opportunity for the UK here as well to develop a different way of doing things. That's exactly right. And I think you have to realise here we are talking about the long game. We are talking mm -hmm. about net zero by 2050. We can argue whether that's long or not, but it's 29 years away. And when you put into perspective that I've been thinking about this for 15 years, that's a, we're yes. already a third of the way along that route and almost nothing has happened. That's not a good yeah. sign. I think most people would accept that between now and 2027, 20, 28, something like that, that, you know, the system is more or less going to do things that we already know. Of course it is. What we are thinking about really and what we have to think about is what happens after 2028. Um, and if we're not ready, if we just if we just sort of realize at that point, oh, this is a bit awkward. We've we got all this energy arriving on shore that we don't actually know what to do with at the moment. It's too late to start at that time. Mm -hmm. What will happen is we will get capitulated into solutions that are viable, but are hideously expensive. And, you know, one of those that's much talked about at the moment is you could use offshore wind just to make hydrogen. And then we could burn hydrogen in turbines or try and put it into fuel cells and make electricity perfectly possible, hideously expensive. <laughs> and that is not the right outcome for the UK. No, that's really, really interesting. What are the are there any sort of lessons that you'd if there was, you know, for, for other people who have got a bright idea for putting their research into practice? Are there any I mean, you know, one lesson I draw from you is a kind of relentlessness. You've got to just keep talking to people, banging on, not giving up. You know, you're making progress and that's brilliant. Are there other things that you'd sort of advise people? Well, number one would exactly be that expect the long game. You, yeah. you, you will not change people's minds in a short period of time. I thought 10 years might have been a reasonable expectation. <laughs> 
So I think probably by, by the time any significant change, it would be 20. There is one other thing that the relative costs are not as persuasive to government as you might expect. And I do recall putting in a proposal to EPSRC that it actually ended up at the very bottom of the rating list, the very bottom. It got extremely high ratings from two reviewers. It got a medium rating from a guy who was not confident, and somehow it ended up at the bottom. One of the things that that proposal was advocating is maybe we could spend half a million pounds to investigate whether we, we can make better the sorts of machines that we are going to spend more than 100 billion pounds on as a country. And, you know, nobody clearly found that argument at all persuasive. So I think that the lesson from that is it's more there's a big hearts and minds component of this, not just numbers. You have to make that sit in the consciousness of, of the people who actually make the decisions. And I do realize that as a mechanical engineer and a, a person who does everything by the numbers, I'm very poorly qualified to do that. Uh, I think you um, you underestimate yourself. You're a very persuasive <laughs> advocate for these things. If people wanted to find out more about your work, where should they look? There are a few events that we have run that were probably the best place to start. And all of these have been captured under the Energy Research Accelerator. There are also some papers in the public domain. So anything with energy storage and me as a co-author will give you some insight. Brilliant. OK, well, we'll put links to those in the notes to this podcast so people can follow up. Just one last question before I say thank you is, so what are your what are your next steps either on this research or on anything else? What are you what are you thinking about at the moment? There's a project uh, proposal in which is the third one in the last 18 months. Again, looking for funding to progress a prototype of one particular way that you can integrate this storage. So if that succeeds, then I will do that project and I will show you that you can make you can turn a wind turbine from being a device that makes electricity when the wind blows into a device that collects energy when the wind blows and makes Mm -hmm. electricity when you require it. And I will continue the conversation with Bayes and try to insist that a third party objective study is done so that we don't have to rely on opinions of me or or people like me or people who think exactly the opposite of me but we can get quantified independent views from people who are qualified to assess both the engineering and the economics that says is there an opportunity for the uk here and it's you know maybe we'll spend fifty thousand pounds on that review and maybe it'll save the country a hundred billion pounds that is the scale of what we're talking about That seems profoundly sensible to me. Thank you again, James. Thank you for listening to the Knowledge Engaged podcast. You'll find a link in the notes to the show to find out more about the Institute, upcoming events, blogs and podcasts.